You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, we are continuing on in our series through the book of Romans. And one of the things that I know I rejoice in as a believer, and I know the same is true for you, is how the scriptures are a cohesive whole. There is one consistent message that the scriptures present. So even as we're going to be considering the words of the Apostle Paul this morning to the church in Rome, consider these words that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. It is very clear in the mind of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he is convinced that the saints need to know that we are no longer slaves, we no longer serve with that kind of spirit of fear, but we are now adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. And we now serve Him as children, beloved, protected, and cared for by Him. So with all of that in our minds, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be considering verses 5 through 17 this morning considering how we have been given the spirit, not of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have been given the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Father. In the first four verses of Romans 8 that we looked at last week, we rejoiced over the statement that Paul made that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We rejoiced over how this is true because the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished, has set us free from the law as a covenant of works to be kept for life or to be broken for death. Christ has saved us. He is our righteousness. He fulfilled the law in every way. He is the atonement and the satisfaction for our sins. He fulfilled the law's penalty. And he has conquered the grave. He has conquered the adversary. And by faith in him, all is well. We need not ever fear condemnation. God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. There is nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect and holy and righteous and good, yet we are none of those things. And because of that, we needed a Savior, and God has provided one in the person of His Son, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh to keep the law and die for sin so that the righteous requirements of the law, its penalty, and its precept might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, who walk by faith in Christ and submit to God's righteousness. Let's look now to Romans 8, verses 5 to 17. Listen now as I read. This is the Word of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, 
are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I have three points and a conclusion this morning. Three points and then a conclusion. I'll give them to us as we go. Point one, we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We are not in the flesh, dash, but in the spirit. We're going to look at verses 5 to 11. We'll be here for a few minutes. Verse 5, I, I don't often do this, but I think it's of some import and help to us. A preferable rendering from versus what the ESV has here in verse 5 would read, those who are according to the flesh. That word live is kind of an insertion there. Other translations, I think, get this right. Those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit. This is a statement of identity, and I think that's going to become clear as we look at it. Either way, don't wig out about the translation, the words, those who live according to the flesh, should be understood the same way that we understood the words walking according to the flesh in verse 4. And those, the words, those who live according to the Spirit, should be understood the same way that we understood walking according to the Spirit in verse 4. To live or to walk according to the Spirit, as we thought about a week ago, is to several things. Receive the righteousness of Christ. It is to be united to Christ. And it is to submit to God's righteousness. That's a statement of identity. On the flip side, to live or walk according to the flesh, as we thought about last week, is to seek to establish our own righteousness. In other words, it is not to submit to God's righteousness. It is to be in Adam, not in Christ. It is to be in ourselves and trust ourselves. That too is a statement of identity. I said last week as we were looking at verse 4 that Paul was not writing about our conduct in verse 4, but that he would in the coming verses, and he does here in verse 5. He writes about how we live. Look at it. Those who are are those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are in Adam, those who are seeking to establish their own righteousness, or at least are trusting in themselves that they're fine, live in a way that is commensurate with that identity. Conversely, those who are according to the Spirit, those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who are in Christ, those who have received his righteousness, those who submit to God's righteousness, those who put no confidence in the flesh, live in a way that is commensurate with that identity. Identity drives behavior. We've thought about this before. More pointedly, for the Christian, union with Christ drives sanctification. Union with Jesus means a transformed life. That should sound familiar. Think about this in light of what Paul has written. This contrast of 
being walking or living or you are according to the flesh versus walking and living according to the Spirit. Think about this in light of the witness of the book of Romans even. Those who seek to stand on their own, walking according to the flesh. Those who are happy to do them, walking according to the flesh, have not been united to the Savior and are still under the law. Under the law is a covenant of works, meaning you either obey perfectly and you get life, or you break even one piece and you get death. People who stand on their own, who walk according to the flesh, they have not been justified from sin's guilt. They have not been set free from sin's dominion. The law only for these individuals exacerbates their sinful passions. People who walk according to the flesh do not agree with the law, nor do they ever delight in it. And deep down, all they want, while maybe there's a desire to escape punishment, Deep down, the desire is to be able to indulge the sinful cravings they have, not be delivered from them. Their hearts are set on earthly things. Of those who walk according to the flesh, these words are written. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Philippians 3.19. Those, however, who walk according to the Spirit, who receive the righteousness of Christ, have been united to Him, and so are no longer under the law to be justified or condemned by it. They, we, who have trusted the Savior, have been justified from sin's guilt. We have been set free from sin's dominion. We now belong not to the law, but to Jesus. And so we're able to bear fruit for God. We now agree with the law that it is good. And we delight in God's law in our inner being. Deep down, our desire is to be delivered from our sinful cravings because we know they're wrong and because we know that they dishonor God. In our hearts, in our sane moments, are fixed on the world to come. Of us it is written, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 3.20. Verse 6, put your eyes there. Again, a better rendering here. This is the last time I'll do this today. A better rendering here of verse 6 would read, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Here, Paul contrasts, again, the opposite states and conditions of believers and unbelievers. For the mind set on the flesh is death, he says. So the mind of the flesh without faith in Christ without the renewing, here it is, the renewing and renovating work of the Holy Spirit is in a state of death that is spiritual and eternal. The person whose mind is set on the flesh is dead in his trespasses and sins. All of his works are dead works. Now, by the work of the Holy Spirit, should a person become convinced think that's describing me. If a person becomes convinced that he or she is in such a state, what is the only remedy? Beloved, it is not to try harder to do better. There is one remedy. It is to look to Jesus Christ, who alone is the one who raises the dead, who alone is the Savior of the guilty, the vile, and the helpless. But Paul writes, on the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. This is descriptive of a mind that has been renewed and is being renewed by the Holy Spirit. 
This is true of believers who have life and peace with God in this world and in the world to come. This peace believers have with God is the exact opposite of the hostility toward God that Paul's going to write about in verse 7. You can put your eyes there. You see, those who walk according to the Spirit have life and peace with the Lord. However, verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Those are strong words. And we need to own the fact that this is true. This hostility toward God is true of the mind of the flesh, absolutely, in its worst character. When a person is completely following the course of the world and indulging sin, that's true of the mind of the flesh, that it's hostile to God. And it is equally true that the mind of the flesh is hostile to God in its best character. When a person is moral and seeking acceptance before God through right living, equally hostile to God. Of this latter category, Robert Haldane writes these words, such men hate the holiness of God. They hate his justice, his sovereignty, and even his mercy in the way in which it is exercised. The mind that is set on the flesh in its worst and best character is hostile to God. Paul goes on to write that the mind set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is big. We say often the difference between Christians and non-Christians is what? Regarding sin and the law. The only thing that makes a Christian different than an unbeliever in this particular matter is that believers agree with God about our sin and we side with him against it. We agree with the law that it is good and we side with God against our corruption. In seeking to stand on its own, the mind of the flesh does not make itself subject to the spiritual righteousness that God's law requires. The fleshly mind, understand this, the fleshly mind is averse to the spiritual righteousness of God's law. It will not admit for a second that God's moral law demands perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. Human beings do everything we can and stumble all over ourselves to deny that reality. The mind of the flesh, relative to what seems appropriate in its own eyes, trusts that it will be accepted on the basis of its own efforts. This is a far cry from what Paul had written of himself and of all Christians in Romans 7. That we see the law as holy and righteous and good, and in seeing that we know that all of our legal hopes are ruined. We become convinced that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That only occurs by the work of the Holy Spirit when our eyes are opened to the righteous standard of the law. And Paul therefore says it's impossible for the mind of the flesh to be subject to God's law because only the Spirit of God would ever make our minds subject to the law of God. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, literally are not able to. The reason for this is simple. I don't need to spend much time here. We read it earlier, Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is by faith that we are united to Christ, and apart from union with Christ, we cannot please the Lord. We cannot serve Him in the new way of the Spirit apart from union with Christ by faith. Verse 9, Paul then pivots to write about the saints of the church in Rome. They, unlike those who are in the flesh, are in the Spirit. Paul points them to evidence of their converted state, that the Holy Spirit dwells in them. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit, 1 John 4.13. Consider, beloved, 
your own life. Consider the lives of the saints around you. Consider the work of the Spirit in us. How do you know? What are one of the ways that you know that you belong to God? It's because you have been given His Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who, as the glory and the power and the mercy and the grace of Christ is extolled, as the office of Christ, the one mediator between God and man is explained, as that is occurring, it is the Spirit of God who takes that and enables us to see that. He gives us life. He causes us to be born again. He convinces us of sin. He brings us to the end of ourselves for righteousness, and he convinces us that Christ is a Savior. He leads us, the Holy Spirit does, he leads us to renounce our sin, to turn from it to Christ. He leads us to renounce our virtue and turn from it to Christ. He leads us to cast ourselves wholly upon Jesus, and he unites us to Jesus by faith. And then he continues to graciously operate in our souls. He teaches us the truth of his very own word through the means that he has appointed. One of the reasons that we value Sunday morning like we do is because we believe that the Spirit of God ministers to us in this context as we open the Word together. The Spirit teaches us of our duty to God and neighbor. He works in us and through us unto sanctification. How many in the room, if I were to ask you, are you different today than you were 5, 10, 20 years ago, would raise your hand? Amen to that. You didn't do it. The Spirit of God did it. You might morally clean yourself up, but love to God and neighbor? Not motivated by selfish gain is the work of God. The Spirit works in us. He leads us to pray. He leads us to confess sin. He intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray for as we ought, which is more often than we would care to admit. He convinces us of our peace with God. We're going to think about this more in a minute. He testifies to us that the word of God is true and that in fact we are children of God. He bears witness. He comforts us in our affliction. He leads us to holiness. And he leads us to joy in the midst of ever-shifting circumstances. On the opposite side of the aisle, Paul writes, though, that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He goes on in verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in us, that is, if his Spirit dwells in us, if we have been united to him, there are several things about us that we can say. This is helpful. We can say that our bodies are dead. They're perishing and that one day we'll die, and that this is the case because of sin, the sin of Adam, the sin we inherit. And at the same time, the spirit is life. This is speaking about our souls. Our bodies are dead, our bodies are perishing, but in our inner being, there is life because God himself has given it. We have eternal life, the life of God, which the Holy Spirit gives us in regeneration, in the new birth. We have this life, the text says, because of righteousness. End of verse 10. This, of course, is not your righteousness or mine. This is the righteousness of Christ to whom we have been united. It is because of Jesus that we have life in our inner being. One day, we will be raised incorruptible and imperishable. We will be freed from sinning. And this will occur through the Spirit of God who dwells in us. Be comforted by this thought today, believer. 
for the saints, death, physical death, is no longer a punishment for sin. Jesus has taken that. Physical death for the saints is no longer punishment for sin, but it is actually the destruction of sin in our bodies. There's a reason we need to die, so that we might be raised without corruption, so that we might be raised to have inherent righteousness, so that we might be raised to such a state that we will never desire sin again, nor will we ever be capable of sin again. Death is scary. Death is frightening. Death is hard for those who are left behind. And for the saints, death is not punishment, but deliverance from sin in the flesh. Point two. Point one was long. Point two will be briefer. We are not debtors to the flesh, but to God. We are not debtors to the flesh, but to God. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. You can put your eyes on verse 12. Starts with the word, so then. This is an inference from what Paul has written. So then, brothers, we're debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. This, again, is a beautiful depiction of the apostolic pattern of exhortation. There's a way that the apostles exhort the saints. This is a great picture of it. Given what God has done, given our union with Christ, given our new status, given the certain hope of bodily resurrection and eternal life, given all of that, we are to live holy lives. Amen, someone. We are not debtors to the flesh to live according to it, either to expect life through our effort or to obey its cravings. We don't live like that. The clear implication is that we are debtors to God. He has set us free from slavery to sin and death. And so our response is what? And set free. I, we will now serve you forever. Verse 13. In this verse, Paul warns us of the doom of living according to the flesh. Now, Paul has warned us before in chapter 6. He reasoned with us about the danger and even the outcome of sin. Sin's going to ruin your life. And what good were you getting from it anyway? He wrote like that in chapter 6. He has more strong words for us here. And these warnings are useful to us. Warning, remember, is a means that the Lord uses to keep his children. Not altogether different than you with your own child. A small child who doesn't yet understand that he or she just can't run out into the middle of the road in front of traffic. You use strong words. Don't do that. Won't go well for you. There are times that discipline is required. Physically grabbing the child and keeping them from it, that's required. Chastisement for that action that could kill them is required. Warnings are used of God in this way. Keep, to protect. Not punitive. Here we go. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live agreeably with your sinful cravings and passions, notice agreeably, you live agreeably with your sinful cravings and passions. If you live according to the principles of your corrupt nature without Christ and faith in him, you will die. The mind set on the flesh is what? Death. But If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, the deeds of the body, I think we all understand, are the works that our corrupt nature produces. Works of the flesh. Think Galatians 5. So two big things here. Both of these things that I'm about to say are true. And if we don't have both of these categories, we're going to trip all over the place. 
One, the saints to whom Paul wrote had put their flesh to death along with its deeds. I'm saying that definitively. The saints to whom Paul wrote had put their flesh to death along with its deeds, and so has every Christian. Galatians 5.24, a statement of fact. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We died with him. The old man has been put to death. Amen. That's true. Hold on to that. And at the same time, there is also the call to continue to put to death the deeds of the body. This is the ongoing work in the lives of the saints. We are to continue on. We talk often, continuing on in the fight, right? The fight against what? The fight against the corruption of the flesh. The fight against sin. So it is true of you and me that we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and we are called to continue to put the deeds of the body to death. Don't get tripped up. It is true that we are perfectly sanctified in Christ the moment we believe. The moment we believe. We are seen in Christ as perfect, righteous. We got all the righteousness we'll ever need. We're no longer seen and dealt with by God according to our sins in Christ. The moment we believe in Jesus, we're sanctified in him, we're counted as perfectly holy. And it is true that there is personal sanctification in our lives that begins at the new birth and continues on until we die or Christ returns. Both are true. You may say, well, brother, help us a little bit. What do we do? What do we do? Good question. This is not an exhaustive answer but let this encourage your heart. The shorthand version of this is calm down and show up to church. I've said that to many people over the course of years because we trust the Lord's means in the church. But let's unpack it a little bit. What do we do as believers on this earth awaiting the return of Christ? Well, we keep showing up here week after week after week after week. We come. We come for what reason? We come to receive from the ministry of Christ. How are we going to make it? How are we going to be sanctified? The Lord Jesus Christ will minister to us. We are fed and nourished by him. He is the bread of life that the Lord has sent from heaven. So we come week over week to receive Christ in the word. We come week over week to receive him in his table. We come week over week to be reminded yet again of what's true. Because my conscience, the adversary, and the world preach a very different word than this word. We come and we sing who the Lord is and what he's done. We come and we pray in Jesus' name. We praise him. We thank him. We confess our sins. We ask him for the things that we need because only he can give them. We do that together. Alongside that, we live life together in the covenant community of the church. We intentionally invest in these relationships. Not that we don't have relationships outside of here. That would be absurd. But we invest in these. We invest in one another. In light of Christ and his sufficiency, this is huge. We live honestly and openly with one another. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ makes honest and open living possible in the church. It fosters sanctification. In light of Christ and his sufficiency, we share our frailties, we share our proclivities, we share our struggles, and we watch over one another in them. We encourage one another and we exhort one another to pursue righteousness and flee from sin. We say it often. If the Lord says it's good, brother, sister, run after that. If the Lord says it's wrong and it'll wreck you, brother, sister, run away. Lock arms with me as we do that. 
We talk like that. We fan that flame. And over the course of years and decades, beloved, it bears fruit. We do all of this because it's good for us, it's good for everyone who's close to us, and the Lord is honored. That's what we do. Understand this. This is just a brief interjection. Be comforted, even as you think about your sanctification, that sanctification occurs by the work of the Spirit of God, and it occurs through faith in Jesus Christ. It will not occur apart from him. Think about Paul in Acts 26 when he stands before Agrippa, right, before a magistrate. He talks about his encounter, Paul does, with the risen Lord Jesus and what Jesus said to him. Jesus said to Paul, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Our sanctification is a certain outflow of our union with Christ by faith. That's chapter 6. We thought about that deeply. Our obedience, beloved, is the fruit of the Spirit through faith in Christ. This is why Paul prays for the saints the way that he does. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, Paul says, praying for the saints in Ephesus, I bow my knees before the Father that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thanks, pray these things too. Pray these things for yourself. Pray these things for your family. Pray these things for this congregation. Point three. We have not received the spirit of slavery but the spirit of adoption. We have not received the spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adoption. We're going to look at verses 14 to 17. As I said at the outset, it's very clear that in the mind of Paul, it is of utmost importance that the saints know that they know that they know that they're God's children. The Christian life, if it's being lived in pursuit of peace with God, doesn't go well. Knowing we have it, Knowing we're his children, it's a different story. Paul says it. Verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Amen. He then expounds on it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So this verse, amongst others, makes plain that slavish fear is not what is to exist in the minds of the saints. Slavish fear is not to exist in the minds and the hearts of the saints. We are not to live in dread of God. Outside of Christ, God is terrible because he's holy and we're not. But in Christ... We are not to live in dread of him. We are not to live afraid of him. Reverence? Yes. Awed by a sense of his majesty? Yes. But not afraid. Not in dread. In Christ, it is not the Lord's will that we would serve him with tormented consciences. Consider these words from Hebrews 9. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if under the sacrificial system you became ceremonially clean through the sacrifice of an animal, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
We are not to live suspicious of God's love for us. We're not to live doubting how he really thinks or feels about us. We are his beloved children. We call him Father. This is now his covenant name, Father. For all who are in Christ, the holy God is a loving Father. We may approach him without fear. We may approach him assured of his fatherly concern and care. Many in the room may have profited from the ministry of Tim Keller, who recently passed away. He's now with the Lord. One of the things that Tim Keller said that stuck with me years ago along these lines, he said, the only person who would ever trouble the king for a glass of water at three in the morning is the king's child. And we have the same kind of access. Amen to that. He loves it. Paul continues on. The Spirit himself, this is verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now this is something. We live in an age when God is telling people all kinds of things. God told me. The Spirit told me. Or, maybe being facetious a little bit, some in the room may have experienced this. We've heard preachers get up and say, y'all better hold on this morning because the Lord done gave me one. Done gave me a word for y'all today, right? We've heard these things. Well, here is something penned in the Holy Scripture. And we're told that the Holy Spirit himself testifies. He bears witness to our spirit that to all of us who have trusted Christ, he has a word. So the Lord done gave us one today, saints. And what is it? His word is, you are a child of God. That is the testimony of the Holy Spirit to your spirit. In light of Christ, your faith in Christ, your union with him, you are God's beloved child. We should talk more about that word. Just like we talk a lot about spiritual victories and stuff, let's talk about the victory that got accomplished 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem on the cross. Let's talk about that victory. We want to talk about a good word. Let's talk about this one. You are God's beloved child. In Christ Jesus, you're secure. He continues on. If you're children, which you are, then you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So for God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of an unshakable kingdom, Hebrews 12, 28. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, Luke 12, 32. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, by faith, we enter into a blessed communion with Jesus, who is, of course, the one and only begotten Son of the Father, the Beloved One. So as members of Christ's body, we are received by God as sons and daughters the moment we're united to Christ. We have been united to God's beloved son and united to him. We are God's beloved sons and daughters. Christ will have an eternal kingdom. The nations will be his inheritance. May you know, says Paul in Ephesians 1, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And at his request, the request of the son, to the honor and delight of the father, the Son's request is that we will be with Him where He is to behold His glory forever. John 17, 24. Now, before we have a concluding reflection, a brief one, I want to draw your attention to the end of verse 17. We're going to be able to think a lot more about this next week, Lord willing. Paul refers to a possible objection at the end of verse 17. You can look at it. If it's true that believers are adopted children of God, 
if it's true that believers are heirs of God, if it's true that they're fellow heirs with Christ, what about the fact that their lives are often filled with suffering and affliction in this life? What about that? That's always a hang-up for people. It doesn't seem suitable for heirs of the living God to suffer. Paul addresses this by reminding us that just as we follow a Savior who suffered, we will also suffer in this life. That we will come to possess our eternal inheritance through tribulation, not triumphant ease. We will bear reproach for the name and cause of Christ. We will face afflictions and trials of various kinds in order that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and therefore with him will experience an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. That's where Paul is going in verses 18 and following. You see how his argument hangs so beautifully together. As for us now, we take great comfort in knowing that as we share in the sufferings of Christ, he is with us in them, and that there is a day coming when they will be over. Just a brief concluding reflection now for us thinking a little bit more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and our adoption in Christ. So we have received the Holy Spirit who in verse 15 of Romans 8 is called the Spirit of Adoption. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, we're told that He is the seal of our salvation. That He is the guarantee or the down payment on our eternal inheritance. We know that He produces in us a sense of being reconciled to God. He produces love to God in us, a regard and a desire for holiness, awareness of sin and hatred of it. We thought about those things earlier. He also produces in us a desire to glorify the Lord now and a desire to enjoy the Lord's glory forever. Perhaps, most importantly, Importantly, in terms of his ministry now. The spirit of adoption. Remember what his word to us is. You are beloved children. In order to preach that word to our souls, perhaps the most important thing the spirit of God does now is to direct the eyes of our hearts to Christ and his saving work. Consider Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We read Hebrews 11 this morning. Of all of the saints who by faith were commended, their lives were up and down. We've made our way through the book of Genesis, right? But by faith, they were counted righteous. By faith, they will receive the promised inheritance. We have a cloud of witnesses. And the Lord is saving his people. In light of all of that, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So in light of all this, let's do this. Let's set aside every weight. Let's set aside sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And believers say, yes, may we do that. How? Beginning in verse 2. Looking to Jesus. Don't miss that. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Charles Spurgeon on Hebrews 12.2 said this, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You do not have the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these, says Spurgeon, are thoughts 
about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Amen. Beloved in Christ, we have received the grace of adoption. We have, think about what adoption means. We have a new name. We have a new status. We have a new inheritance. We didn't have one before. We do now. We are given compassion. We are protected. We're provided for. And when we are chastened and disciplined, that occurs from the hand of our loving heavenly Father who means for us to share in his holiness, who means for us to make it to the end. And we take great comfort in knowing that we are never cast off, but we are sealed for the day of redemption, and we will inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Our adoption means that we will be finally saved. And to dwell on, so when I say dwell on, set our minds on. To dwell on this abiding security is what empowers Christian living. Beloved child, you are a son or a daughter of the Father. And now live from that. Knowing that we are God's, we can pray along with David, these words. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And all the saints of God say amen. And we're now going to go to our Heavenly Father in prayer.